Good morning, everybody. Had to make sure my mic was on because Dave's not here to wave in the back. So I had to make sure that that was on. Although I'm sure that Chris would have done a fine job. To Can just practice? Just yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> I'm glad to see everybody here this morning. I'm so happy that we were able to celebrate uh, our graduates. Uh, and uh, we, we will celebrate our graduates every year. It is just an exciting time. Thousands of teenagers across the United States, either this past week or this coming week, um, are celebrating this time where they are finally able to say, I don't have to get up at 5 o'clock to go to high school anymore. Now they get to get up at 5 o'clock to go to work or to go to classes or things like that. But we are honored to have our graduates here this morning um, as they celebrate this milestone in their lives. Um, and we pray for them as they take their next step in their life journey. And I just want to say just for a moment, I am so excited about the things that are happening um, for, uh, for our graduates, but, uh, but for our church as well. Um, walked, uh, drove in this morning, I saw the big sign for VBS hanging there on the wall and it just got me so excited that uh, we've got VBS coming up. Um, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but uh, this time last year, our average attendance in Sunday school downstairs was nine. Now it's like 16. We have almost doubled our Sunday school attendance. Uh, this time last year, we did not have a youth group. And now we've got regularly um, anywhere from six to 10 students gathering uh, to have fun, to get to know each other, and to learn about God's word. So I'm just very excited about the things that are happening for our young people. But graduation is an exciting time. I know for me as a teacher, it's exciting. I get to watch these human beings that I've tried to pour knowledge into um, and, and beg and plead to get their work done on time so that they can graduate. And they actually can, can graduate. They can walk. They can smile. They can say, I did it. I'm done. I've accomplished something. And as a teacher, I, I, I know that I'm trying to pour knowledge into them. I'm trying to help them understand concepts and things like that. But I'm hoping also that along the way, I can pour in a little wisdom, uh, things that they might actually remember after high school. And in many graduation speeches that I've heard and you, and you might have heard, you might hear something like this. These 12 years of school have helped me to learn the skills you need to survive in the real world. This is something that I hear at every graduation and most of the seniors that are listening to this speech say, really? I, I haven't learned anything. I don't, I don't learn anything that's important for the real world. They taught me how to play the recorder, not how to balance my checkbook. What's going on? But it is true, we do, the, throughout school we learn a lot of things about how to relate in the real world. In elementary school, on top of things like learning how to read and learning how to write and to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, we also start to learn how to, to relate to our peers on a social level. We learn things like sharing. We learn things like acting kindly towards one another. And we learn these things. These are not things that are in the curriculum. They are things that we just start learning. Adults are showing us, hey, this is how we share. This is how we're kind. This is how we play together. 
This is how we work together. And in middle school, that kind of continues the working together part. How many of you like those group assignments? Where are my students that love group assignments? Nobody likes a group assignment, right? Why don't we like a group assignment? Somebody's not gonna do their part. Right? I have never been in a group. I took a master's class where I had a group assignment where somebody didn't do that. I mean, it just, it doesn't stop. There's always that one person. But in middle school, we start further developing our knowledge, right? We learn uh, reading comprehension skills. We learn literary analysis. We learn to write in full sentences, right? Some of us, math gets a little harder as they start adding letters to math, which I have never understood before, right? X equals this. You gotta figure out what it is. But we continue to develop our knowledge and we continue to develop those social skills. We determine the people that we like and we determine the people that we laugh at in the hallways. We do because we're humans. We decide who is cool and who is worthy of being laughed at. And we learn that in middle school. And it gets kind of pounded into us by our peers. These people are cool, these people are not. And then in high school, of course, our knowledge base explodes, right? We're taught trigonometry and calculus, more of those you know, letter math things that I don't understand. Classical literature, drama, biology, chemistry, physics, all of those really more um, difficult things, um, especially difficult today, U.S. history, world history, those things that um, are, are, are definitely being taught differently than when I was a student. But we also build camaraderie on sports teams and, on, and in clubs. We learn to drive. We start to date Shh, don't tell your parents you've started to date. But we do, we start to date. When we start to date, we learn that maybe showering every day is a good idea. <laughs> so we develop these real world skills. I can't tell you the first time, you know, well, the first time I heard, I've got to shave. Um, <laughs> I was like, okay, we got it, we're, we're developing. But hopefully, throughout our educational experience, right? Throughout school, and I'm really talking to our students here this morning, but you guys remember too. Hopefully we learned things that we could use to good effect as grown-ups. Because believe it or not, parents, your children will soon be grown-ups. They will still be going out on their own each step in our education was supposed to be a step towards maturity, right? Things got a little harder, we worked a little harder, we developed more social skills, we're maturing towards adulthood. And of course, we have all of the fear and all of the excitement that goes along with those things. And we read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, I think he might not be telling the complete truth here because I've still not given up childish ways. But we get the point. We're maturing. 
We're taking things a little more seriously because things are a little more serious. We realize the importance of things. And as parents and teachers, uh, we watch our students graduate and we hope that they have gained that wisdom. We hope that when they walk down that aisle and they take that piece of paper and they pack up for college and they head off for the first time maybe on their own, that some of the wisdom that we have tried to impart on them sticks. And as Christian parents, we pray that our students will remember the lessons that they learned in Sunday school. We pray that they remember the things that happened here in the church services. We pray that they will come to their own strong faith in Jesus Christ. And that they will have the strength and the courage to continue in that faith when their parents aren't around, when their teachers, when their pastors, when their youth pastor is not around all the time. And that's tough. Young people, as you grow and mature, as you take steps in your journey that take you away from your family, away from your friends, away from your church, it's going to be more and more difficult for you to maintain your relationship with God unless you are very intentional about doing it. And if you're sitting there, young people, and you're thinking, no, that's not me, I got a little story for you. There was this boy. For the sake of the story, we'll just call him Pastor Joe. <laughs> I attended a Christian high school. Went to church every time the doors were open. I was in the choir. I was in the youth group. I was in the youth group band. I went to the summer camps. I went to the winter retreats. When I graduated from the Christian high school, I went to a Christian college, Messiah College, right up the road here. That's where I went for college. Attended chapel twice a week because it was mandatory, but you know. <laughs> And very quickly, I saw my relationship with God deteriorate. I was surrounded by people who called themselves Christians. And my Christian faith weakened and weakened. I was on my own for the first time. Everything changed. First of all, I was dealing with stresses that I had never had to deal with before. And those of you getting ready to go to college, you're going to find those things out. Those of you who are in college now, you know what I'm talking about. There are stresses that we perform well. There are stresses that, okay, we've got a scholarship and we've got to get this certain grade point average to keep the scholarship or we can't pay for college and then we're going to have to go home and we're going to have to live with mom and dad and we're going to have to get a job. All of these stresses, all of these things I had on my mind. I was stressed with the classes. And I had to spend so much time studying these classes that I stopped studying my Bible. Just didn't have time for it. And I was so tired at the end of the week that I never decided to find a church because all I wanted to do was sleep in on a Sunday morning. And I got to tell you, if you don't have a church community somewhere, even away at college, things can be tough. 
as far as your faith is concerned. By the time I graduated from college, my relationship with God was all but extinct. I was done. Came to enjoy late nights partying, going out to bars, hanging out with people. Discovered and became addicted to pornography. Lived in sin. And this was all within six years of graduating high school. I'd forgotten about God. And because I had forgotten about God, I was ashamed to be in contact with my family. There was a time when I was living in Florida about three years after I graduated college. I didn't talk to my mom for nine months. My mom and I used to talk every day. Everything just fell apart. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s, I was married and I had a son, that I stepped back into a church for the first time. And the reason that I gave myself, and you remember this, the reason I gave myself for stepping inside a church for the first time wasn't because I needed church. It's because I wanted to expose my son to religion so that he could make his own decisions. That was the reason that I gave myself. Fortunately, God had other plans. See, God might have even put that thought in my head. Yeah, go ahead, expose your son to Christianity. Go ahead, because I got plans for you too. And he did. As I attended church, he started speaking to me through the pastor. He started speaking to me through small group leaders and even through my, my kids' Sunday school teachers. He started talking to me. He started working on me. And ultimately, he reminded me that he still loved me. And he reminded me that he had always loved me, no matter what I was doing. And that's hard to remember sometimes. And after about a year, I repented of my sin I turned my life back to God, and almost 20 years later, I'm standing here talking to you this morning. And I got to think that that's part of God's plan, too. In Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, we read about Jesus and his experiences here on earth that made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And it also made him the perfect person to sit beside God the Father and intercede for us. To tell the Father, yes, I understand what they're going through. I understand the temptation that they've gone through. I understand how hard it is to avoid that temptation, to resist that temptation. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in Hebrews 4 and 5, we read about this. And in Hebrews 5, uh, verse 10, the author says about Jesus, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Anybody here know what that means? Well, the people that were being written to, the Hebrews, they knew what that meant. They knew who Melchizedek was. But even the author of Hebrews realized that talking about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek was pretty much a stupid thing to do because about this we have much to say 
and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You've stopped reading your Bible. You've stopped praying. You've stopped going to church, just like I had. I can't talk to you about these deeper spiritual things because you don't even remember the basic spiritual things. The author is telling these Jewish Christians, you don't listen so good. You're not doing the things that you know God wants you to be doing anyway. Because Melchizedek, they learned about in the Old Testament. But they can't make the connection between him and Jesus because they're not ready for that level of knowledge. They're not ready for that level of understanding. Remember we talked about being in school and we learn things at a level of understanding and that understanding is supposed to grow. It's supposed to mature. Just like in our spiritual lives, our understanding is supposed to mature. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the author says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What the author is saying here is that you should know these things already. You should be at a place where you can teach other people who Jesus is, what he has done. It's like high schoolers who either forget how to read or never learned to read in the first place. As a teacher, I can tell you that I run these classes where I assign essays. So I'll give somebody an essay. Give me a 250-word essay on the effects of inflation on the economy. Some of them remember me saying something about inflation and the effects on the economy. But the problem isn't whether they know that or not. The problem is they've forgotten how to write in complete sentences about anything. How can I teach them about inflation in the economy if I can't even get them to read or write at a basic level? And this is what the author here is talking about. How can I talk to you about the deeper spiritual things if you don't even remember the basics? If you don't remember Jesus Christ died for your sins? If you don't know that, if you don't understand that, how can I talk to you about anything else? And remember, this person, this person writing this book is talking to Christians. As Christians, we ought to be able, as we mature, now I'm not talking about people who became Christians yesterday. But as we mature, as we sit in church, as we sit under a pastor, as we learn, as we study our Bible, we ought to be able to tell people that Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we may be forgiven by God. We ought to be able to explain to them that we are sinners, that we are apart from God, and that Jesus' death and resurrection 
offers us the opportunity to reconcile, to come back to God. We ought to be able to tell people that. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer's saying, you're not ready for that. You're not ready even for that. I got to put you back on the baby bottle. I got to give you milk because you're not ready for the meat of the word. You're not ready for the seriousness. You're not ready for the deepness of God's word. And there's one primary reason why these Hebrew Christians have not yet matured. Verse 14 of chapter 5 says this, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Read that again. Who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If we don't know the basics of Scripture, if we don't know the basics of why Jesus came in the first place, how can we know the difference between good and evil? I'm going to tell you the, the, the difference between good and evil. This is in a very huge nutshell. Good is anything that we do or say that is acceptable to God. Evil is anything that we do and we say that are not acceptable to God. That's as simple as I can think to put it. But some people who will hear that will still be confused. How do we know what's acceptable to God? How do we know what's not acceptable to God? And I would say, everything you need to know is in the Bible. Shouldn't that make it easy? No, because we're human beings. Because we want the Bible to tell us that we are doing good. Because we don't want the Bible to tell us that we're doing evil. We don't want the Bible to tell us that we're doing bad things. So we change the meaning of things in the Bible so that it sounds like we're doing good. This is just a simple fact. And this is one of the greatest challenges facing our young people today. This phenomenon of being told that good is bad and that bad is good. Let me tell you about some articles that I came across this week as I was preparing this sermon. There's one article titled, The Moral Case for Sex Before Marriage. The Moral Case for Sex Before Marriage. The article tells us, and this is a quote, having sex before marriage is the best choice for almost everyone. It is the best choice for almost everyone. And the reason for this, according to the author, and again, I'm quoting here, first of all, nearly everyone, almost 95% of people, have sex before marriage. The old, everybody else is doing it argument. Now, the author goes on to admit, of course, just because lots of people do things doesn't mean it's good things, but sex is. And I'm sorry, folks, but it sounds to me like the author is trying to make a case for why they have sex. 
outside of marriage. And it has nothing to do with whether, whether they think it's good or bad. They want it to be good. They've made it good. And Satan will use articles like this. The enemy will use these things because guess what? Our young people, some of our older people, are really good at Googling stuff. How many of you are really good at Googling stuff? How many of you realize that according to Abraham Lincoln, everything you read on the internet is true? <laughs> everything you find. We know that there are a lot of things on the internet that are not true unless we want them to be. Then it's like, oh yes, of course, see, look, Pastor Joe, here's an article. Moral use of premarital sex. I can do whatever I want. And that's what we do. And Satan convinces us that because 95% of the people do it, it must be a good thing. Doesn't matter that the Bible tells us to do things like flee sexual immorality. We want to do it, we're going to do it. And we're going to call it good. Well, let's say that the enemy fails to convince us that premarital sex is, is good. We still believe it's sin. We abstain from it. That's okay. He'll move on to another temptation. You know what? You're really strong for abstaining. Bravo. Good job. But you know what? You still need a release. It's unhealthy to keep all of this sexual tension stored up in your body. Why don't you go to the internet? There's some places out there. And you can look at stuff. You can take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. That's what we call it. I can take care of myself. And I found articles like this. Nine surprising reasons why you should be watching porn. Or another one, how watching porn is good for you. And that second one can be found, by the way, on a website called askmen.com. You think they have an agenda? Do you think they want bad to be good? Yes, they do. But Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman and I don't have that slide. Anyone who looks after a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many of you remember reading that passage in the Sermon on the Mount? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I have a feeling that Jesus probably also meant every woman that looks at a man with lustful intention has already committed adultery with him in her heart. The enemy will tell us, we read this passage, he'll tell us, you can't help how you think. Thoughts just pop into my head. How can you be held responsible? How can Jesus tell you that you are guilty of adultery just because a thought pops into your head? Or he'll turn it around. You know what? You're going to be guilty of it anyway. You have a lustful thought, you're already guilty. You may as well do something about it. And he will try to convince us that doing something about it is good. Today, the enemy wants 
to convince us that good is bad, being a Christian is bad. And you can read about that on social media. Being a Christian is bad. Doing all of these other things, well, that's good. That is how he works. He wants to convince you that sin is not sin. And sadly, many Christians will buy into these things. We will make ourselves believe that sin is not sin. Do you know why? Because there are a lot of Christians that say, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I'm sorry to tell you, God does not want you to be happy. I just blew some of your minds right now. God does not want you to be happy. God wants you to be righteous. Jesus said, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I know that this is going to get me in trouble, but we're coming up. We got this, this whole thing, you know, Memorial Day, 4th of July. This is going to get me in trouble with a lot of people sitting here this morning. God is not interested in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't care what the Declaration of Independence says. Those are not the unalienable rights that God has given us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I would actually argue that it's just the opposite. God calls us to death, servanthood, and the pursuit of righteousness. That's what God calls us to. Anyone who saves his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. We think that we should be pursuing liberty in the way that the Declaration of Independence says we should. We should be pursuing servanthood. We should be a servant to every person on earth as Christians. And we're not to pursue happiness. We're to pursue righteousness because righteousness doesn't bring ha about happiness because happiness is a fleeting thing that changes from day to day and hour to hour. And you know, I'm telling the truth. Happiness changes the things that make us happy change. You know what pursuing righteousness produces? Joy. And I can be joyful in any circumstance. Joy doesn't change. And that's what God calls us to. Happiness is a cheap trick. Happiness is what the enemy wants you to be. Joy is what God wants for us because when we die to ourselves we become servants of Jesus Christ we seek God's kingdom we will have the power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil 
That's where we started this morning, back in Hebrews. The power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Young people, every young person here, I want you to understand this. Old people, you listen to. <laughs> if you say you're a Christian, you must constantly practice distinguishing between good and evil. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be impossible in some cases to distinguish good from evil because the lines have blurred so much. And this is the truth. You must know what God says is good. And you must know what God says is evil. And you must constantly be paying attention to the Holy Spirit as He convicts you and tells you what is good and what is evil. And you must always be willing as a Christian to stand up for the good. To stand up for what is righteous. Not just what is right. What is righteous. As you gain independence from your parents, and those of you who are sitting here still in high school, you think you, you, you've got a long way to go before you're independent from your parents. It's not going to be that long. And as you gain independence from your parents, independence from your family, independence from your church, independence from some of your friends, it's going to be that much more important that by the time you graduate from high school, that, that by the time that you go off to college, that you are mature enough. You're not going to be fully mature. I'm not fully mature. I'm almost 53 years old, and I don't have it all figured out. But you have to be mature enough to be able to start to discern what is good and what is evil and not to confuse the one with the other. We must put the pursuit of righteousness first before our achievements, before our relationships, before anything else in our lives. Because I don't care if you are the fastest runner. I don't care if you have the most tackles on the football team. I don't care if you're the best quarterback in all of college or the pros. If you are not primarily pursuing righteousness, it won't matter. It won't. As you leave here, as you leave home, even as you go on sleepovers, you're going to be faced with choices about doing good or about doing bad. And you're going to face a lot of pressure. And you're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to do good? Am I going to stand up for righteousness? Am I going to say no when somebody pulls out something that I know is evil, that I know is bad? Or am I just going to go along with it? If you go along with it, the enemy is winning. God wants you to seek righteousness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for 
bringing us here. We thank you for our graduates, for all of our students, for our children. Oh, God, we just thank you that you are bringing them here, that you are helping us as, as ministry leaders to help them to mature in faith, to help them to make the decision to follow you, to help them make the decision to pursue righteousness. Father, help us to do a good job so that when they leave the safety of their homes, they will remember that righteousness is everything. They will remember that Jesus Christ died for them so that they might be righteous. Father, we pray as we go into this time of communion that you will help us to examine ourselves, that you will help us to seek forgiveness for those things that we have done that are not acceptable to you. And that you will bring to remembrance what Jesus Christ has done so that the next time we're faced with temptation, we can stand up and righteously say no. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to be commemorating communion. This is a time that Jesus instituted on the night before he was crucified on the cross. Jesus gave us two symbols that he wanted us to use to remember him. He gave us the symbol of bread. He said that this bread represents my body and my body is going to be broken for you. My body is going to die. He gave us wine. And he said, my body is going to die because it is going to be drained of my blood. And my blood represents the new covenant with God. My blood represents your chance to reconcile with the Father by asking forgiveness for your sins. This morning we're going to take just a moment of silent prayer and reflection. Prepare for communion. And uh, as they are ready, the deacons will come forward to serve communion. The way we do this here, if you're not familiar, uh, everybody will get up from their seats, come forward, receive the bread, receive the cup, return to your seats, and we will all partake together. So take this moment. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, 
took bread, and after he gave thanks, he broke it, and he passed it around to his disciples, and he said, take this and eat it. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and again he blessed it. He passed it to his disciples, and he said, Drink this, all of it, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is spilled for you for the forgiveness of many. Each time you drink this, do it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do remember the Lord's death until he comes. May God be with you this week, and may we remember to pursue righteousness, to pursue faithfulness, to pursue holiness in Jesus Christ. God bless you this week. Mm -hmm.